If you haven't thought and processed very much about the way racism works in the world, you are very likely to put your foot in it. Thank you guys so much for being here. For our listeners, my name is Lauren Stockman-Brown, and we're here with the My Colorful Nana Project. Um, Lily and Elizabeth, if you could say your full names, your pronouns, your race, and your gender identity to start. Lily, you can start. Okay. Um, My name is Lily Storter. Um, I'm a woman. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm 21. Mm -hmm. Are those... And I'm African-American, mixed African-American. Awesome. My name is uh, Elizabeth Storter Pryor. I am African-American and Jewish. I use she, her, or they, them. And I consider myself a woman. Uh, That's my gender identity. Awesome. Elizabeth, if you could say um, a little bit about your experience with your research um, and your experience as a professor at Smith College and as Richard Pryor's daughter. Um, Yeah, so I started researching the N-word because I was studying early 19th century Black travelers. And what I saw is that when people like Frederick Douglass and William Wells Brown were uh, writing about their experiences of trying to get into stagecoaches and, you know, trains, etc. Inevitably, they had this experience. And actually, all free people of color in the North before the end of slavery had this experience of being confronted by the word, the N-word <clears throat> when they were in public spaces. And so since it appeared so often in so many narratives and memoirs, I mean, it was it's like it's it was standard. I started to think about what it meant for those travelers to go abroad and not hear that. And they wrote about that too. They would write about, uh, say things like, you know, I stepped on British soil. I, you know, I walked in Liverpool and I felt uh, like a man for the very first time, or I almost entirely forgot my color. And so I started thinking about just like actually the, the actual like kind of work as a sound object that the N-word would do, hearing it so much in public space in the North and then going into a a, a space where you don't hear that. It's not that people aren't racist, but you just don't hear that world hurled at you. So I started doing the research and that sort of collided with an incident that happened in my classroom where a, a white student who was delightful and always on my team uh, was trying to connect with one of my lectures and actually quoted a line from like a 1970s comedy um, that had two racist slurs, one for people of Chinese descent and the N-word, but the students said the actual words. And I was just stumped in my class, you know, with that, with not knowing how to handle that as a teacher, that I'd never really thought through what to do when the N-word enters my class in that space. So I started researching more and more. And as I started writing about it, I mean, the research was really fascinating and um, I can talk about that more, but I don't need to. But as I started researching it more and more and started writing about it more and more, people started saying to me, my father's Richard Pryor, who was a, you know, very um, famous comedian in the 1970s and 80s, really groundbreaking black comedian, um, groundbreaking comedian. Um, And he used the N-word um, in a way that people were not accustomed to hearing it. He talked, he used the black version, 
like the way black people spoke to each other and in their homes on stage um, mm-hmm. and kind of broached this for a, uh, a white general audience. And so when I started doing this work and people knew who my father was, they'd be like, you're the perfect person to be writing about the N-word. And I, <laughs> and, and, <clears throat> and I was like, really? Why do they say, you know, are they sure? Oh, they're just saying that because... And then I realized how my father had his own journey around the N-word in his work. He started using it a lot and ended kind of disavowing it. Mm-hmm. And that it really was kind of this triangulation of my personal life, my research, and my classroom teacher. It's nice to have pride about your shit. I went home to the motherland, and everybody should go home to Africa. Everybody, especially black people. <laughs> One thing I got out of it was magic I'd like to share with you, you know, it's like I was leaving and I was sitting in the hotel and a voice said to me, he said, look around, what do you see? And I said, I see all colors of people doing everything, you know? And the voice said, do you see any niggas? And I said, no. And I said, you know why? Because there aren't any. And it hit me like a shot, man. I started crying and shit. I was sitting there, I said, yeah, I've been here three weeks. I haven't even said it. I haven't even thought it. And it made me say, oh my God, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. I got to regroup my shit. I mean, I said, I ain't gonna never call another black man a nigga. So Lily, when you hear that your mom has spent so so much time studying this one word, and then of course you're a descendant of Richard Pryor as well, um, and you identified in this podcast that you're mixed, how is your relationship is your relationship to the N-word different? Is it more intimate because you're surrounded by someone who researches it? Um, what are your thoughts? I think that my relationship with the N-word is more academic, like I said. And like you can see, I'm mixed, but I'm definitely white passing. And also just like the communities I've lived in, like the N-word isn't a word that like I'm hearing in my house or like with my neighbors or with my family. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, like, feel connected to, like, the colloquial version that my mom was describing and that my grandfather used on stage. I definitely think the academic version of the word, I feel super entrenched in. Like, any time it's brought up in classrooms or um, on the news or whatever, like, I kind of feel like an expert about, like, that use of the N-word and how it's used um, as, like, a racial slur. So that's kind of my connection, but I personally don't use the word myself. Mm. Liz was talking about how, in in your TED Talk, how generationally we use the N-word in music and different cultural phenomenons. It's just a level of expression that we have, that we're surrounded by, whether you're mixed, white, black, Asian, Indian, whatever. Do you feel like it's more common used in music now than in the past? And I guess it's a question for both of you. Um, well, <clears throat> is it more com- Well, yeah, it definitely is more common because I think starting with people like my dad, um, Dick Gregory before him, who had a memoir just called N-Word, but the actual word, you know, I think it's important for anybody listening to know that the fact that we're using the phrase, the N-Word, that is a, that's a new phenomenon. When I was growing mm-hmm. up, people didn't have a phrase called the N-word. That's something that like in the late 80s and early 90s started to develop um, with black activists and intellectuals 
created this sort of stand-in phrase and it quickly caught on. I mean, I think it really speaks to how uncomfortable um, people are in using it and how often also people kind of needed to say the actual word that there's a stand-in for it, right? So so NWA, you know, people like that. I mean, um, hip-hop was sort of like this this kind of crossing over where an old guard of African-American activists and civil rights activists really were uncomfortable with young Black artists and musicians inserting the N-word so kind of freely and easily into their music, uh, like with such nonchalance. And so like a lot of the first kind of protest against um, the the actual word comes from even Black intellectuals who mm. don't want to hear it in that context. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for sure it's definitely used in music more. There, there's no question it's used in music more. And that has to do with the fact that Black culture in all its, you know, valances is, you know, celebrated and recognized and that it's not disguising itself. There's there, there's not always the need for, um, what do you call it, uh, um, thinking re- respectability politics, right? So mm. the, that 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 uh, I think the use of the N word in that way is sort of a flouting of respectability politics. Got it. So even now, this is again a question for both of you. I feel like we're in such a timely point in history or in modern times where white people don't always know what to do when there are black deaths or when there are words like the N-word or when there are these uncomfortable topics surfacing to a point where you can't really look away. You can't really deny that it is reality. Um, So a question for you both is, you know, what is something that you would suggest or recommend or something that you found helpful for someone who is white seeing the the reality of the black experience? in 2020, how would you suggest going about that? Would you suggest posting more on social media? Would you suggest sitting quietly, researching? I've been thinking about this a lot lately because of the death of George Floyd, which mm-hmm. just happened a few days ago in Minneapolis. And I think that like there are a lot of politics around like white allyship and like what feels good to like black people mm-hmm. um when it comes to white allyship and i personally think like the thing that feels best and most important is like active pursuit of like justice and research and education and so um mm-hmm. it was really meaningful to me to see like friends calling the DA's office um, in Minneapolis after the death of George Floyd. Actions like that, I think, are the most important. I think it's really harmful when white people are silent about racism. I think that's, like, possibly the worst thing they can do. Um, Education is definitely important if people are, like, less comfortable with, like, being more active. But I think calling and, like, using their white presence as this power to actually like do some good, I think. What do you think, mom? Like if you're really going to be an ally, if you're really going to be teachable and have the humility in in the movement and it, that you've got to know that you're walking into something where you're going to be a big like kind of clawed, you know, walking into walls, bull in a china shop and still come out and have the willingness to be have people put you in your place once in a while, like and not kind of, I think what I see sometimes is like the response, like, see, you know, we tried to help black people, but they just end up, 
doing this and this and this when mm-hmm. we, you know, like those yeah. kinds of responses. And, yeah. <clears throat> and you know, the, you know, the fact is, is that like, it, it goes so deep. This is so layered and so deep. And if you haven't thought and processed very much about the way racism works in the world, you are very likely to put your foot in it, you know? Mm. And um, mm-hmm. I think it takes a lot of, like real allyship is, is humble. Mm. I like that a lot. Mm. I like that a lot. So let's start to pivot into this topic of black hair. So a question that I have for either of you, whoever feels more comfortable talking first, um, is how does the lack of language that U.S. citizens face when attempting to describe and teach the N-word relate to the lack of understanding regarding a black woman's relationship to her own hair? It's a really good question. It is a good question. Mom, <laughs> I want you to go first. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think that where these issues intersect is the fact that we're not supposed to talk about them or that the answers are already there. Like, my thing, like, I was never allowed to really talk about my hair because I grew up with good hair. Like, so all the black women in my family said, oh, you have good hair. And that was sort of like the end of the conversation because it, what it meant was my hair wasn't super kinky, you know, to my head that I had kind of a loose ringlet. But to me in the world, it did not feel like good hair. You know, but that was like that little space in there by what people are telling me. And then, of course, white people who always say, I love your curls, you know, and you're just like, (laughs) no, you really don't. But thanks. I hear what you're saying, whatever, (laughs) or want to play with my ringlets or now my hair is like completely chopped off and my husband cuts it with a clipper. But um, but, you know, uh. I think there's like a an idea just like with the N-word that like we already know the answers so we really don't talk about this. Like the conversations mm-hmm. about the N-word are often polemical. Like you say it or you don't say it. And I feel like in between you say it or you don't say it, which seem like the least interesting parts of those conversations, there's so much more depth to be able to mine and explore. And in between like you should be happy with your hair. You should wear it down. You know, it's beautiful, you know, be yourself or all these other kinds of things that you get told around your hair. Like there's a whole conversation that there, there ha- that, that space hasn't really been developed to, to explore. So I think that's, that's the connection for me, mm-hmm. I think. Mm. What about you, Lil? Yeah, like I, I think I second everything you say, but also... I think my experience is pretty similar to Lauren's where like I, I, I I probably still don't even really have like the language to talk about my hair or like black beauty um, and kind of the history behind like why I don't have those words or like why I think a certain way about my hair. Um, I, I had a similar experience to you, mom, where like I grew up and Lauren also I grew up in like a predominantly white community um, 
the most beautiful girls in like my elementary school were like blonde and had straight hair. Like that was like, oh my God, Emily is so gorgeous. (laughs) Like that was like what we always heard. And so, um, I don't know. It was like this weird balance between, um, people telling me like, oh my God, I would pay for your hair. Like, do you know people go and get perms to like get your hair? Um, so like that, that was what I heard often, but what I felt was like, I want my hair straightened all the time. I remember like down to like each iron stroke, my first hair straightening, like, Mm. and how big of a deal that was to me. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I think it was only maybe this year in classes that I kind of started learning about, um, like the history of language behind beauty and like marketing standards and um, what it means to be beautiful in the U.S. and also in South America. But yeah, I I, I have a similar experience to you, Mom. Mm. So Liz, when I first approached you to be on the podcast, I didn't even consider, well, I didn't know that you had a daughter, one, and I didn't consider that <laughs> it would be brilliant to have a mother-daughter interaction um, recorded. So I'm just wondering why why that came to mind for you, to have your to have Lily a part of this episode. Well, I mean, as soon as it was about hair, because my, my daughter is, obviously you can see her, the listeners can't. She's gorgeous. I get to say that because I'm her mom. And um Thanks. and but there's this one, you know, place where I see her kind of coming against her. Um, it's like this kind of one place where she gets stuck about her own beauty. And it's her hair. It's always been the hair. Even when she was like when she was little, her hair took a really t- long time to grow in. And the, the, the words she would use is, when am I going to get my long hair? Like, mm. that's how she would describe it, because it just took so long for her hair to grow in. So it's really, like, been a lifelong issue for her. And, um, and a place where somebody who has a lot of experiences in life where they can kind of put their blackness on hold because they are white passing, but this is a place where you know, for whatever reason, she's not allowed to pass through. Like, this is not your white passing place. And it's, I don't know, I just, I thought it would be great to hear how Lily would think through this kind of tension Mm. for herself. So Lily, when you hear that, one of the things that I've realized in, you know, doing this work, I've been doing it for the last two years, is that what it all comes down to, whether you are, you know, non-binary, Black, white, whatever, mostly Black people or the people who are half Black or anything like that, biracial, feel this, is that it's their relationship to their hair is rooted in the relationship to their mom um, or the relationship that their mom has with their hair or how their mom treated their child's hair. So how do you feel hearing that and being on this episode with your mom? It's really funny because until I saw the questions for the episode, I like pretty much never thought of the connection between my mom's relationship with her hair and my hair to like me. Um, When I was thinking about it, I thought of this story that my mom tells me all the time and I'm so embarrassed about, which is, (laughs) do you know what I'm going to say, mom? No. Um, Which is in elementary school, 
I asked her to grow her hair out like all the pretty other pretty moms or something like that. Mm. And like my mom said, just really curly hair. I, I, I think of it as like super kinky and curly at it. Like, um, and so that I feel like is like the baseline for like my understanding of like beauty and my mom's hair. I think my mom's beautiful now. I don't, whatever, like it's such an embarrassing story for me to hear, but, um, that I think is like my strongest connection. I also think my mom, like, I don't know when you stopped doing my hair mom, but like maybe I was seven. And like, since that point, I was like doing my own hair. Do you remember? I don't know if that's right. But like, I think I was like in charge of my own hair from a really young age. And my mom's had pretty short hair for my entire life. And so it was kind of like, I think my connection with my hair was like a little bit like you're on your own. Like you kind of got to figure it out. Like my mom never, I don't think you've ever like pressed my hair or blow dried it or really done braids since I was really little. Um, And so that's kind of been like my connection with my mom and my hair. The the only time I'm thinking about, um, (laughs) I got to jump in. The one time I feel like Lily and I got hair bonded was when... She had lice when she was like, 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 no, but really I, I, because she had it and I was like, read everything about how to treat it and stuff. I think she was probably like 10 or nine Mm -hmm. or something. Um, I think actually it was her 10th birthday party where we discovered all the girls had it, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I would sit her down and pull the hair, you know, thread by thread, like every night, a couple of times a day, we would sit her down and pull. And it was that kind of one time, I think, that I had that mother-daughter hair connection. But she's right. I think for the most part, it was, you know, I'm thinking through, like, why did I do that? And I didn't want to impose, like, I knew that whatever choice my daughter made about her hair was really in some ways making a choice about her race. And I wow. and I really and I really didn't want to impose my I mean of course I wanted her for the health of her hair mm-hmm. to wear it natural but the the way that I didn't want to tell her what her beautiful was, her own definition of her own beauty, her own feelings of her own identity. I didn't want to kind of make and shape that. So I think that's kind of why I backed off of that. But it's really interesting that that's her perspective, that I kind of left her alone to her own devices with her hair. So Liz, you said that you are Jewish. And I wrote growing up in quotes, because I don't know your experience growing up, but if you lived with your mother, who is white and Jewish, um, what was that like for you? Especially like when once you got so interested into the work of African studies, you ended up in a biracial relationship or interracial interracial relationship raising biracial children. Um, what's that like, and how do you how do you make sense of it? And ha- have there been any interesting epiphanies or realizations in that? Well, it's so funny because just hearing you talk is reminding me about how Lily looks a lot like my mom, but. Um, I think, you know, my mother used to, she really did do her best, but one of the things that she used to say to me all the time, and and this is how Lily and I just as as humans are very different, 
um, is like my mother would always say to me, you don't play with your hair. Why don't you play with your hair? Why don't you, you know, why don't you try braids? Why don't you try to curl it? Why don't you, you know, she always wanted me to try to do something with my hair, like to try to, um, uh, and I didn't really have interest in that. I don't make wear makeup. I'm doing a, um, I'm doing a fundraiser tonight on zoom and, um, I spoke to somebody who was like, do I have to dress up? And they were like, yeah, you might want to, you know, did it up, put on a little makeup. And I was like, well, I'm not doing that. Like, I just don't, I mean, I'm just, that's not, that's not, and it was like, unless my daughter gets to me and starts doing something with the circles under my eyes, but I don't really see that happening. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> but, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, a contentious thing for me, um, only between me and my mom, because, it always felt like I should be doing more if I really cared about how I look. My mother used those kinds of things. Like, if you really cared about how you looked, you would. She wasn't telling me not to have my hair curly, but she was just telling me to be almost, like, more black and more connected to my hair, which actually reminds me of the story of Lily's that you kind of introduced the whole conversation in, which is when she was told, you know, to wear her hair down or something. I don't know if you want to talk about that, Will, but but that's the kind of messages I got. Like I should be doing, I should be doing something with the hair. And then eventually what, what happened was when I, I mean, I wore it in a ponytail all the time and I tried to wear it down. I didn't like the feeling of it on my neck. It was heavy and and I wore it in a ponytail so often that one day I just decided to cut it off and see what that would be like. And Jada Pinkett was my inspiration for that. Um, <laughs> How old were you? Back in the 90s. Um, <clears throat> I want to say just probably right after I married my husband, so, so maybe 97 or 98 or something like that, right, right after the baby was born, Lily was born, some, somewhere around there. And, um, um, and yeah, I, I, I cut off the hair and I have, I tried at one point to go longer. That's when Lily said, why can't you have, you know, have your hair long like the pretty moms? I think that's when I tried to grow it back out um, for her. And then I, um, it just, it, it just was the same thing. It felt like the same thing. And I, and I cut it off again because I felt like at least I had some flair when I had it completely cut off and putting it back in the pony, putting it back in the pony, always having that pony. And yeah, so. So I didn't, I didn't know that once Lily said that, that you tried to grow it out again. Oh no, what? I did. I listened to everything she tells me up till this day. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that like when, when you decided to grow it out again? Um, why, what was it to make her feel safer? Was it to make you feel safer? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't I, know I why always I would listen to a little kid. Go ahead, Lil. That I think part of the story that like strikes me is that whenever I hear it, I'm like, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's like this combination of like kids always tell the truth, like stuff like that. And so that's probably what it felt like. But I'm always shocked to hear like that my mom actually grew out her hair when like a seven year old like asked her mm. to and told her that was beautiful and. And I think that's, like, the part of the story that I'm like, wow, like, even that she remembers that I said that is, like, more of what is impactful than, like, me saying it. It's like, okay, this, a seven-year-old telling you 
what is beautiful is like going to stick with you. You're going to remember it. And you're also going to like act on that. That's like what I think is like the most powerful part of that story. I mean, I, I, mean, I think part of it was like, you know, now that you're saying it, it's, it, when she was in elementary school, she was like, they, we had like a brownie club of like four little brownies that like moved through the world together and they put them in the they put them in the classes together every year. The school was very conscious of it, um, and kept these four girls together. And um, there was some way in which her saying, like I I felt like, yeah, I guess I felt like it was truth. And in my mind, it's funny. There's one mom in my mind that I felt like she was talking about too, you know. And so it mm. wasn't just about my hair. My hair was the part that I could deliver. The part that I couldn't deliver was like the diamonds and the really nice house. And because I was in graduate school and my husband was a working stiff and all this, you know, like I couldn't deliver all those other things, but I could grow out my hair. Because she went to like, we were on scholarship at a an elite private school in LA that was terrific um, for her, but that, that had a lot of wealth around it. And I think that's mm-hmm. part of what it was, the thing that I could do was grow out my hair in response to that. When I think what I heard her say was a lot of other things also attached to like mm-hmm. the pretty moms, you know. Mm. That's really interesting. Especially just thinking about, you know, truth. Like uh, like Lily, you said, you know, I was, you know, you, th- you think of younger kids, you think that they're telling the truth. And it's like, some of these topics are so ingrained in us that when you say them, it's like, this is true. Like, this is true. Mm-hmm. That, you know, my hair is lesser than your hair. This is true. Um, so it's a lot of unlearning that's been really exciting mm-hmm. to do and realizing, okay, well, what really is the truth of this? And like, how do I feel about this? Um, my last question, my last question for both of you um, that I ask all of our, what I call them generous thinkers, um, anyone we interview, anyone who helps out, generous thinking. Um, what do you think is the importance of the My Callful Nana project and having conversations like the one that the one that we had today? You want to go first, Lil, or you want me to? Sure, I can go. Um, I love this project. I feel like it's like I'm going to be a, a listener now, but um, I just think it's really important. I think people are doing it now, like I even see on like TikTok or like YouTube. People are talking about black hair more and and the meaning of black hair and why it's important to take care of your hair and think your hair is beautiful. Um, but I really wish that I had that growing up. Um, and I like look back on pictures of my hair and think like, wow, it's so beautiful. Or even like it wasn't beautiful, but um, like wishing that I could have like embraced it more and, and known the meaning behind like why wearing my hair natural is important or what it means to press your hair and why that's important. And and I just like wish that I had more conversations with people who were like thinking about this. And um, I like really didn't have that growing up. And I think it would have been important hair-wise and also just like understanding what race means to me. So. Awesome. Yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, I love just being able to have this conversation with you, two, you and my daughter, two young people who are, you know, just graduating from college and, you know, just seeing kind of like the generational differences, but especially like sitting, you know, 
my daughter and I, Lily and I are super, super close. I mean, we're, we're a close family. And, um, she said, you always say that you always like to say that, but, but it's, but, but it's, but, but it's, but it's true. We, we are close. I have a lot of respect for her. She's an incredible woman. Um, and, but we don't talk about this a lot. And so this was a really, I think this was like a really neat way, you know, for me to not like kind of get on my like holy roller high horse and <laughs> be preachy about, you know, the hair or like, you know, start breaking down. Like I'll start talking to her about slavery and stuff. And she's like, wait, no, I'm just talking about my hair, you know, like, <laughs> but this was kind of, you created a bridge for us to be able to have these conversations. And I think it's really important probably for a lot of people to be able to have that bridge um, to just be honest about, you know, where they're at with their hair, because it, chances are, if you're African-American, you're thinking about it. Mm. 